Here's a news flash. Surprise, surprise. Well, look at you. The whole world is watching for my next move. Oh, my God. Times have changed. There are no rules. You're going to love it. Hi, and welcome to Skip Intros, a podcast from Binge, all about the world's best television. Each week, we're here to discuss the biggest new shows on Binge, along with our dinner party recommendations. My name is John Bohm, here with Ali Herbert Burns, and together we look after all the great TV and movies that you see on Binge. Ali, this week we've got a doco series and a crime drama. Yeah, two really different shows, don't we? From England, yeah. we have gripping new crime series called Steel Town Murders, which is actually sadly based on a true story from the 70s, a really good British show. And then we have, as you said, kind of doco reality series called Swiping America, which is about dating and it takes some kind of city slickers and takes them out of their normal situation and basically hand over their profiles to the show, the experts, to kind of help them find love. So a kind of different way into the dating game. Plus I didn't have recommendations, the things we recommend on binge. Cool. Well, should we fire up the apps and head to Swiping America? Oh, let's start with the love. What have I done to meet someone in New York? Everything? At this point, it feels like I've met every single guy. I'm feeling like a disconnect. A lot of nerves, a lot of stress. I've tried a few guys and it hasn't worked out. Time to try something new. Four single New Yorkers hit the road in the new eight-part docuseries, Swiping America, that sees the group get out of their Manhattan dating bubble and explore romance in different cities. Ali, I think the opening titles of this described it as a rom-doc, which yeah. I, don't think is a, I don't think is actually a genre, but I also think sets the tone in that if you're trying to describe this to someone, it's not The Bachelor, it's not F-Boy Island, it's not super constructed dating on an island kind of thing, but it's also not entirely a documentary. Like there's some sort of conceits and formats to it, but it's much more natural. It is a bit refreshing in that, you know, you've taken people who are a bit burnt out by city life and city dating and just say, cool, we're going to go to like eight different cities and see what kind of people you don't normally meet, you might meet. It's kind of like if you go to Arizona or wherever they might take you and then it's like if you were firing up the dating apps when you got to Arizona, for example, these are the guys that would pop up potentially and the producers are selecting ones for you to meet. And if you hadn't left New York, you wouldn't have met these other kind of personalities. I thought where the documentary vibe of this, the rom doc, which is kind of cool that they've come up with a little genre, was the people are quite vulnerable to talk about what's happened to them. So when Mm. they're when they are talking about their background, and I actually made me think straight away. I was like, gosh, I wish Married at First Sight would do it like this because it, you actually straight away had a much better sense of what had held them back or what they were into or what they were really like. Like it wasn't like a my journey so far has been this or, you know, like you sometimes get that really polished vibe on Australian reality television. It was people showing pictures of their life or some backgrounds. Like one lady had got married really young and her friends are saying it was a bad idea. And you, I don't know, that was what I really liked about it. You got a good sense of the people before they started yeah. off going off and started dating. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll run through the cast quickly. But the other thing that I found interesting, and as a 38-year-old, I feel like I can say this, like, reality television reality dating especially like if you're over 25 you're like old for so many (laughs) of these shows so I thought it was refreshing that there were like people in their late 30s on this show because tv still assumes you're like married with children at that point anyway but also (laughs) that it's a blend of heterosexual bisexual and homosexual relationships so you yeah kind of yeah you kind of just blending everyone's stories it wasn't all this like lots of the same kind of people looking for the same kind of guy 
that was cool. Yeah. And I think one of the struggles that sort of traditional reality formats have found is trying to be queer inclusive. And I think shows like The Bachelor just aren't structurally set up to just suddenly have gay participants because the format doesn't work for it. So I thought it was really refreshing that these four contestants, two of them are queer, the format completely worked for them. Like they, they didn't have to make anything up or do any gymnastics to make it work for these characters. It was all very natural. But anyway, the, the four characters are Ashley and Chris are the queer characters. Ashley's a business owner and Chris is a like first generation American data scientist guy. The other two women are Keysun, who's a 36 year old realtor and Reagan, who's a hairdresser, who you also mentioned has sort of a very interesting background in that she was sort of raised Mormon married early, has a child. I feel like you get to know these characters a bit better than you would on a normal show, partially because maybe the, I guess the suitors, as they would be in another show, almost play like secondary characters. Mm. I think, I thought it was interesting that even by the end of the first episode, you felt like a lot of camaraderie by these four people who were sort of connected by the show, but you could see genuine friendships emerging while they were going on this journey together. And that's a good point because, uh, I mean, in each town that they roll into, they're going on multiple dates. So, yeah, you're not really following one major love match. You're really just seeing these people going on lots of dates. And that's where that sense of getting to know them and understand them is so important, I think, in this. It kind of helps you as you watch more of the episodes understand either patterns or the way they're operating is really they're repeating it, you know, sometimes in some of the dates. So I thought that was interesting. Ultimately, if any of these people like find their loves of their lives, it is a bit tragic because they would be finding someone who doesn't live anywhere near them. But I think maybe the moral of the story is A, that these people become friends, the sort of four participants become friends in the process, which is just as important as, you know, platonic love is just as valid as any other kind. And secondly, I feel like there is this kind of meme or trope that like you'll find someone when you're on holidays or when you go away to do college or like this idea that you can't find the person that you're looking for in your own environment sort of thing. And I feel like that's just fake. (laughs) Even 90 Day Fiance is kind of built on the conceit that like all these people have found the loves of their lives on the other side of the planet. You have to get over whatever it is is preventing you from finding people in your day-to-day life (laughs) that means you have to go marry someone on the other side of the planet or why are you more open to this when you're in Nashville for the weekend as opposed to when you're at home in New York so I feel like there's what about your life in New York is blocking you from meeting the right people is it your ego is it your habits is it your you know you're still connected to work or you're doing the things you've always done versus yeah when you're kind of a bit fish out of water and I think that's your point because the four of them are all having the same experience so yeah. Be bonded by that. It's also from the creators of another show we've talked about on the podcast, We're Here, yeah. if you remember, yeah. which was also about going to different small towns around America with drag queens. So yeah, it's got a really different vibe to it than a lot of reality shows, which is why I guess it's it's not a reality show. It's a, it's a rom-doc. <laughs> uh, but yeah, all episodes of Swiping America are streaming for you now on Binge. We're going on a journey across America to date people. Where are the what damn doctors? I don't really meet people that I connect with very often, but I, I totally am an eternal optimist. My social media presents us a little bit more confident than I am. What do you do? Uh, I work with adult entertainment. Set across two time periods in the 1970s and the early 2000s, the new BBC crime drama Stilltown Murders tells the true story of the Saturday Night Strangler, the first documented serial killer in Welsh history, 
and the first person ever posthumously identified as a serial killer via DNA. South Wales Police are today commencing the reinvestigation of the unsolved murders of Geraldine Hughes and Pauline Floyd in 1973. If you're looking at the Clandarcy murders, I'd like in, ma'am. Nobody knows the case like me. You were CID here at the time. Things were different then. Ali, this is, on one level, your classic BBC crime drama, gritty, dark story. What I think really elevates this is, A, it's based on a true story that has a couple of really interesting aspects to it, but also is told across these two time periods where the crimes were first happening and then 30 years later when the crimes were getting reinvestigated and the things they missed because technology wasn't up to the challenge at the time and the things they missed because of the nature of policing in the 70s versus nature of policing in the 21st century. So, yeah, I think it touches on some really interesting things besides also just being a really compelling true crime drama. Yeah, it's one thing that is interesting because some people listening to this might be like, hang on, didn't the Golden State Killer case get solved through DNA, but this is actually would have been before that because it was said in the original murders were in the 70s and, as you say, they kind of reinvestigate them 30-odd years later. So this is in the early 2000s that this breakthrough is happening. But I think this has also got all the kind of the twists of a fictionalised crime series as well. You've got, as you say, there's kind of like a small town that this is happening in. So you've got cops kind of investigating their friends and like living amongst the people that this is impacting. And so a couple of times during the series, I had to kind of really remind myself, gosh, this really happened, which is quite distressing. But it does move back and forth between the times. You have to pay attention, I suppose. Don't be on your phone. Put the closed captions on and lean in because... You know, you have to be following along. It's not so much a like a who done it as like how it happened sort of thing, like piecing it together as opposed to sort of a final reveal of who did it because, at, you know, at least in the UK, this would be a very well-known story and they knew the conclusion. So, yeah, it's but, you coming at it at a different angle. So they always just thought these were individual crimes and it's 30 years later that they go, these were done by the same person. So that's kind of a new point that comes in. Yeah, and it's also just one of those reminders of how much technology now just naturally plays in our lives. Mm -hmm. Like the idea that just didn't piece together these seemingly very obvious killings that were happening in a very close like proximity. Mm -hmm. The guy even got flagged in some system, but because that system didn't talk to another system because it was the 70s and it was all paper, he was never investigated at the time and all these things. And then, you know, even the, the 2000s is still comparatively technologically ancient compared to where we are now. But yeah, it was still really interesting to see what they were able to do with that technology, even in the early 2000s, as DNA became more and more mm-hmm. sort of accessible and using to, to solve crimes. So yeah, but it's yeah, not it's, kind it's of a your, fascinating case. It's not your kind of typical cop stories. It's from the point of view of the main detective that was investigating. But I think there's so many other side components to this story that make it feel quite different. Also, I just love how the British do great. We often talk about this. They do three, four, six episodes and they do these kind of crime series so well. We've got lots in this vein as well on, on Binge. We've got Deadwater Fall. We've got Sherwood. We've got a great collection of a carousel of all this stuff. So if British crime's your thing get lost in the volume of of similar things that we've got available. And then if you're anything like me, you end up falling into sort of a Wikipedia hole, reading all the articles after you've watched the series. Yeah. And I love that you can binge this, can't you? So you can really sit down, watch it in a couple of hours, and then you can go look up the real stuff. It's sobering. Yeah. All four episodes of Steel Town Murders are streaming for you now on Binge. The three victims have waited almost 30 years. I need this, Phil. We've had the results back on the DNA. You're dealing with a serial killer. I hope you know what you're doing. You're taking a risk. I think it's a big one. 
And if we fail, this is the time to hold our nerve. John, we're at the part in the pod where we talk about dinner party recommendations, our little favorite gems, things on binge that we love and we recommend to our friends or randoms when we're at dinner. What is your recommendation this week? What have you got for us? Well, Ali, I have waited like two years to talk about this show, Ooh. so Ooh. buckle up. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Okay. <laughs> Why have you waited so long, my friend? Oh, because it's taken us this long to secure it and finally get it on binge, but I am very excited Drum roll. to say, do, 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 do. very excited to say that we now have the first three seasons of Taskmaster New Zealand on Ben. <laughs> of course so, it's a Taskmaster connection. Of course it's Taskmaster related. Of course related. it's Taskmaster related. <laughs> so if you have watched your way through all like 16 seasons of Taskmaster UK, we're thrilled to be able to bring you the first three seasons of Taskmaster New Zealand, which is an excellent, beautiful iteration of the format. It was actually... Obviously, the UK one's still running. There was a short-lived US season a few years ago. And then after that, they didn't make another English language version till New Zealand. And it's sort of arguably the first like successful English language adaptation. And they've done an excellent job. It's the Taskmaster in New Zealand is Jeremy Wells, who's radio, sort of a, like a radio newscaster kind of guy. So it's slightly different to the traditional comedian, but he's got that sort of like, who's the guy that hosts like insiders? He's got that kind of like political yes. sort of investigative sort of authority yeah yeah vibe to him yeah. which is fun to play off the journalists to pay off the comedians the taskmaster's assistant is paul williams who's an excellent young comic and even though it's new zealand having watched the first three seasons it turns out a lot of new zealand comedians make their way to australian screens so you're actually going to be really familiar with a lot of this cast so people like madeline sami who's right now in deadlock ursula carlson who's like on everything in australia and in the upcoming season four which we're getting very soon there's also melanie bracewell who hosts the cheap seats mm -hmm. and karen o'leary who hosts wellington paranormal and also in the same way that the UK version uses up and coming talent, the New Zealand version does something similar. So you also just get introduced to really cool young Kiwi comedians as well. So oh. yeah, I'm so excited. It's like 30, 30 odd episodes are all streaming for you now. And season four will be coming in a few months once that, once that airs in New Zealand as well. So John, that means you've got all the British seasons, all the New Zealand and ones, all up. Yep. And you're dropping the yep. th these three New Zealand ones. I haven't waited two years. You're not... Yeah, Making us wait any longer. <laughs> no. Okay, cool. But and by the time you've got through those, season four will hopefully be ready. So yeah. Awesome. That is my dinner party recommendation. Well, mine's a little bit different. We've got the final ever season of Outlander currently on binge. And this is just a PSA for people. The original Outlander deal happened a long time in the olden days. And we do not have full box set rights. We have tried enormously to go back in a time machine and fix that. But unfortunately, we have 28-day catch-up rights, which I feel like I'm back in 2013 explaining this to everybody. But it means we only have each episode up for four weeks. So please don't, if you're an Outlander fan, don't be that person that waits until episode 10 and you can binge them all at once because you'll only have the last four available to watch. So you need to be watching these every week because by the time episode five comes, episode one will no longer be there. So Anyway, that's very boring ad mini. But if you love Outlander, check it out. Season seven's rolling out every week. But we have a show called Men in Kilts, which for Outlander fans will know we've got season one currently on binge. Season two is coming at the end of, of the run of Outlander. But it takes 
two of the Scots that are in Outlander and it's a documentary series and they go uh, touring around Scotland. So it's almost like a travel show brought to you by two of the main characters in Outlander, which is super fun and they drive around in a camper van or whatever and you kind of get to see them journeying around Scotland. Very enjoyable, been heavily watched. Lots of fans love it because you're kind of getting a better sense of, of two of the most famous actors that are in the show in their natural form as, they, as they're kind of just hanging out together. And Men in Kilts, I think six episodes currently available for you on Binge. And a second season coming soon. So that is a shout out for anyone that likes Scotland or anybody that loves Alan. Uh, we never plan these things, but season two of Men in Kilts, much like my dinner party recommendation, is being filmed in New Zealand. So the second season of Men in Kilts is actually them traveling around New Zealand. Why do they go to New Zealand? Just for fun. They're just buds traveling the world. Hmm. So this is literally yeah. just going to come like the hairy bikers going around the yeah. different parts of the world. Season one started out as obviously sort of Outlander related, but yeah. now I think they just had so much fun. It's just a travel show now. Awesome. Okay. I did not know yeah. the New Zealand connection. I did wonder, are they just going to go to more parts of Scotland in season two? But no. Cool. All right. We're going on the trip of a lifetime. We've spent a lot of time here, obviously, shooting Outlander. What is portrayed in the show is truthful mm. in many ways. Time travel mm. is truthful. Yeah, I wasn't necessarily thinking of the time travel bit. This week on Skip Intro, we discussed Swiping America, Steel Town Murders. I recommended that you check out Taskmaster New Zealand. And Ali reminded you to watch Outlander Weekly and also check out Men in Kilts with season two coming soon as well. All of these are streaming for you now on Binge, which of course you can find on your favorite device. I'm John Bohm, joined every week by Ali Herbert Burns. Thank you so much for listening. This podcast was produced by Dan Barrett with audio editing and mixing by Chris Yates. And we'll be back next week with more Skip Intro.